New York Times tech writer Shira Ovidey tried to describe the size, power, and wealth of the big tech companies. She writes, every few months, I concoct new ways to say that tech giants make a lot of money. Today, I give up. I just say that big tech companies are really, 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 really big and really, 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 really rich. America's five technology superpowers, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and Facebook, are titanic and still growing. They have nearly infinite resources to help them stay on top. She showed the following numbers. Apple's profit for the past year, 101 billion U.S. dollars, was more than the combined yearly profits of, take a deep breath, Walmart, General Motors, Exxon, Pfizer, Verizon, Disney, Coke, and McDonald's. People watch 15 billion YouTube shorts, bite-sized videos like TikToks every day. Facebook generates on average $214 for each user in the U.S. and Canada last year. Facebook is one of the best money-making machines in Internet history. Microsoft owns the not-popular Bing search engine, and yet the company's annual advertising sales of more than $10 billion U.S. dollars are about 20 times the 2021 ad sales of the New York Times. Amazon is so mammoth that just the current decreased value, $267 billion U.S. dollars, is about the total value of Disney. Jeff Bezos' new yacht is so big that a bridge in the Netherlands will be dismantled to accommodate the boat's height. That is rich. The striving for power and influence has even worked its way into churches. Many churches sadly embrace a gospel of power and wealth. They give up biblical convictions just to grow bigger and will not preach the difficult truths of the Bible so as not to offend and garner more influence. Growing up in Texas, where everyone and everything fights to be bigger and better, Many churches compete with one another by advertising that they serve the best coffee, that they have the most comfortable pews and chairs, that they have the most complete ministry offerings, that they have the best children's ministry or youth program. But rarely do you ever hear about how they are committed to Jesus Christ and are living out the teachings of the Bible. In our desire to be bigger, better, and more influential, we have forgotten some key basic truths taught in the Scripture about power and influence. And the Bible has a lot to say about power and influence. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 8 as we study verses 5 to 25. Acts chapter 8, verses 5 to 25, as we learn some biblical principles about power and influence for followers of Jesus Christ. As we continue our sermon series, Voyager, studying the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul as recorded in the book of Acts. Now, as you're turning to this passage, you may be wondering why we're going back to chapter 8 and looking at an incident that doesn't deal directly with the Apostle Paul. It even happens before his conversion. You see, after Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, he will now stand before some of the most powerful people in the Roman world at that time. And you and I may be surprised by Paul's bold response to them. But I believe Paul had a proper biblical understanding of power and influence. And that's why he wasn't afraid and was able to speak so boldly. 
So I thought it would be a good idea before we study those passages to see what the Bible teaches about power and influence as experienced in the early church. Contextually, this was a time of great persecution in the early church, and the church was being scattered. But as they were scattered and persecuted, they were preaching the Word of God, and more churches were growing and flourishing. But as the churches were growing, there were people who were looking for power and position, just like in today's world. People were vying for influence and to be influencers. Now, let's see what the Bible says about power and influence. I read now verses 5 to 8 of Acts chapter 8. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. The Bible tells us that one of the early church leaders, Philip the deacon, went to the city of Samaria in the region of the Samaritans and preached Christ there to a people that the Jewish people looked down upon because of their intermarriage with the Gentiles. The gospel of Jesus Christ must have been a welcome message, especially brought by someone who was Jewish himself. For you see, Philip, like Stephen, was a Hellenistic Jew. The Bible tells us Philip had an amazing ministry. He was able to do many miracles which authenticated the message he brought. You see, the primary purpose of miracles is to authenticate the message. His miraculous works included demons coming out of demon-possessed people, which demonstrated the authority of Jesus over the demonic realm. And the paralyzed were healed, and the lame could walk, showing the power of Christ over the physical world. Philip's amazing ministry demonstrated the power and authority of Jesus Christ. And I say this because I want you to focus on that phrase in verse 5. He preached Christ to them. Philip preached Christ. Philip taught about Jesus. Philip proclaimed and spoke about Jesus Christ. He didn't preach about the greatness of Philip. He didn't even preach about the power of Philip as a follower of Jesus Christ. Philip simply preached Christ, focusing all attention to Jesus and Jesus alone. And this is the first thing I want us to understand. Biblical principle number one. There is true power and authority in the person of Jesus Christ. There is true power and authority in the person of Jesus Christ. I think this is something we all know, but it's something we so often forget, that true power comes from Jesus Christ alone, and that our authority is derived from Him. Jesus reminds us clearly of this in John chapter 15, verse 5. John 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. For without me, you can do nothing. And yet, how do we live our lives? We live our lives thinking that we have the power to get through our problems and overcome obstacles with our own power, forgetting the enabling work of Jesus Christ in our lives. We try to live independently from Jesus. But if we're honest with ourselves, we really don't have much power. We don't have the power to control what will happen next week, much less what will happen tomorrow. 
We can plan all we want for a wedding a year in advance, hiring the best of coordinators and suppliers, and still something could go wrong if, for example, the weather didn't cooperate. You could be the best athlete in your sport, but miss the game-winning shot by one centimeter, or accidentally land awkwardly and break your ankle or pop your ACL. If we trust in our own power and ability, instead of relying on God's power, then we will be in for a big disappointment. And that's why Jesus clearly tells His disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It is clear God the Father has given God the Son, God Himself, all authority over everything in heaven and on earth. So again, why do we live our lives as if we're in charge and in control when only our Lord is in control and in charge? It would be foolish of us not to acknowledge the power and authority that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. It would be as if we tried to hammer a nail into a wood plank with just our hands. It would be foolish to even attempt it especially when there's a hammer right next to us that could greatly aid us in our endeavor, and we refuse to pick it up because of our pride. That would be just plain stupidity. And let's say that hammer is offered to us, it is pointed out to us, and still we refuse while we bloody our hands trying to pound that nail into the wood plank with our own hands. It would be laughable. But in the same way, we have the enabling power of Christ with us to get through life, and we just ignore Him, and He is no part in our lives. Remember all the true stories from the Bible of how this truth plays out in people's lives? How God was able to take a prisoner in the person of Joseph and make him prime minister of Egypt in just a few seconds by causing Pharaoh to look favorably upon Joseph. Or how God took away King Nebuchadnezzar's absolute power in Daniel chapter 4 when his pride got the best of him and he declared that the vastness of his empire was because of his own doing. And so God had to show Nebuchadnezzar who really held ultimate power and authority. My friends, when we remember there is power and authority in the person of Jesus Christ, it is both humbling and comforting. Humbling because we remember it's not about us. It's about Christ. And if we are able to accomplish anything, it is because of God's enabling grace through His power. It's also comforting because in our weakness and feelings of inadequacies and insignificance, we can seek out the strength, power, purpose, and significance that comes with Christ. Remember what the Lord told the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. I remember the story of a father who decided to take his son to play at the local park one day. The boy quickly gravitated to the sandbox and found himself mesmerized by the colors and textures surrounding him. After a short time, he began digging around to see what treasures might reveal themselves to him. As his hands plunged under the sand, he discovered something rather large. 
and having pushed enough of the sand away, he realized it was a large rock. Instantly, he knew he needed to move that rock, no matter how big it was. This rock was the obstacle to his dreams of a sandbox clear of all extraneous matter. So the boy tried as hard as he could to move the rock. He pushed and pushed and pushed, and finally, he was able to get it to the edge of the sandbox. But the next step would be the hardest. How could he get it over the edge? Again, the boy pushed and pushed until his energy was completely fried. The rock's stuckness matched the boy's feelings of the situation. Eventually, he started to sob. The boy's father watched all this. And just when the meltdown began, the father went over to his son and began to comfort his overtaxed, dejected son. Why didn't you use all the strength available to you to move the rock? The father asked. The boy was confused. I did, Daddy. It's just too heavy. No, son, you didn't. You didn't ask me to help. And at that, the father lifted the rock with a single hand and tossed it out of the sandbox. My friends, we have the power of the living Savior available to us, and yet we go looking for power through other sources and means and trusting in our own limited power. We have the power of the living Savior available to us. Let us use it. Now look with me at verses 9 to 11. But there was a certain man named Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. The Bible tells us there was a man named Simon who practiced sorcery, meaning he was involved in the dark arts and exhibited real powers from demons. Because of what he was able to do, he was able to get all of the Samaritans to believe that he was someone great and even to the extent of listening to him because he had proved over a long period of time that he was a powerful man and delivered on what he said he was able to do, even though it was demonic in nature. The point here is that we have a man who had a lot of credibility. He had power and authority in the region, albeit from Satan, who can stand up to him. Look what verses 12 to 13 tell us. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. To our surprise, it wasn't the miraculous works of Philip through the power of Jesus that won over the people to Christ. Verse 12 tells us clearly it was through the preaching of God's Word, specifically about God's plan for them and about Jesus. It was a message that resonated with all genders. Both men and women, the Bible tells us, were baptized to outwardly proclaim their inward belief in Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible tells us that Simon himself also believed and was baptized, a true convert to Christ because of the preaching and teaching of God's Word. My friends, remember this next truth, biblical principle number two. There is true power and authority in God's Word. There is true power and authority in God's Word. The Word of God 
changes lives. The Word of God changes lives. It isn't just any book. Because it comes from God, it is authoritative. And because it is God's Word, God the Holy Spirit uses it to transform and change lives. My friends, do you believe this? If so, why don't we read the Bible more and study it more? Why don't we apply the truths of God's authoritative Word into our lives? Sandy Bodie shares her story. I was raised in Southern California with two older sisters. Our grandmother introduced us to witchcraft at a young age. She gave us incantation books and taught us how to cast spells. We would do seances with our friends down the street, and we thought this was normal. As I grew older, my dad had taken it a step further. Not only was he involved in the occult, but he got involved in Satanism. My dad introduced me to drugs for the very first time when I was only nine years old. By the time I was 11, I was addicted to those drugs, and I was a willing participant in the occultic activities. By the time I turned 17 years old, I decided to run away from home. I dropped out of school thinking there had to be a better way. I didn't know what I was searching for exactly, but I knew that I had a desire in my heart for someone to love me. Living in California at that time and in pursuit of this longing, I ran to Washington State. Still addicted to drugs, I did whatever I could to get the drugs without having to turn back to my dad. I was prostituting myself at night. I ended up in Texas, met someone, and tried to change my identity so my dad couldn't find me. I got together with that man and had a little girl. My dad showed up at my front door about three weeks after I'd moved to Texas. I was pretty much convinced at that time that there was no way out of this lifestyle. My husband and I ended up divorcing, and shortly after, I received custody of my little girl. I moved in with my sister, who had just gotten out of the psychiatric hospital. One night, as I lay in my bed, I felt something nudge the bottom of my bed. I sat up and saw about an eight-foot-tall hooded figure standing at the edge of my bed. He pointed to me and said, It's time. I did not understand what that meant. After all my involvement in the occult, I'd never encountered an entity like this before. I knew that this was something significant. He continued, It's time now for you to teach your daughter what your grandmother taught you. Little did I know that my grandmother had passed away three weeks prior. I knew at this moment a continued cycle was supposed to go from my grandmother to myself to my children. I knew this was a supernatural fight, and I had to do something to protect my daughter. The only way I knew how to save her was to take my life. And so my daughter would then be adopted by a normal family who could show her a way of life that I never could. I remember going out to a remote area in a field and sitting in the front seat of my car. As I sat there, I was sobbing and leaned my seat back. I had a razor blade in one hand, and my other hand fell to the side in between my seat and my console. I felt something. I picked it up. It was a Bible. I had gotten my car from a drug dealer. I knew he wasn't a Christian, and I've never seen this Bible in the several years I've been driving this car. I started thumbing through the Bible, and I put the razor blade down. I got to the back pages 
and saw a sample prayer. I read the prayer aloud, and I gave my life to Jesus Christ that day. I have never been the same. The love that I had searched for all my life was just one prayer away. At that moment, I felt the passion in my heart that I have never experienced. I knew that God was close. I went home and grabbed my little girl with so much excitement. I reached out to my former father-in-law, who knew I was in a spiritual battle. He flew me to his home, and my daughter and I stayed with him and his wife for about three years. I was like a sponge, absorbing God's Word. Susan and her husband today are now pastoring a church in Texas. My friends, I've seen it countless times. The Word of God really does change lives. The Word of God transforms lives. God the Holy Spirit uses His own words to convict and change lives. Now back to our biblical text. The contrast here is the preaching of the truth versus the demonic power of Simon the sorcerer. And guess what? The preaching of God's Word won out and will always win out. You see, my friends, the preaching of Christ always trumps anything else. God's truths always trump experiences. God's Word is what changes lives. And so if there is power and authority in God's Word, then read it, focus on it, and treasure it. Now, experiences and emotions are an important part of our spiritual lives. But don't always look for it for your spiritual highs because you will become dependent on it and wait only for emotional highs and experiences to maintain or even propel your spiritual walk. And that is unsustainable. A consistent discipline of reading God's Word will give you the enabling power to make it through the day because God's Word reminds us of truths seen and unseen. It's like the story of a child who had to walk each evening past a dark, spooky house. Some adults sought to give him courage. One handed him a so-called good luck charm to ward off the ghosts. Another had a light put on the dreaded corner. Still another said earnestly, trust God and be brave. The advice was good, but he offered nothing more. The child was still afraid. Then someone said with compassion, I know what it is to be afraid, and I will walk with you past that dark and scary house every night. And now the child was no longer afraid because he had a companion. My friends, to understand from God's Word that He is our constant companion in life, that He goes before us and always accompanies us should give us courage and strength. He so clearly states throughout the Scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There is power and authority in God's Word because God's Word reminds us of truths seen and even unseen. So read it and make sure you know it well. Now look with me at verses 14 and 17. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. To prove the inclusion of Gentiles and Samaritans into the church 
and that Christianity wasn't only for Jews. During this early transitional period of church formation, the Holy Spirit didn't immediately indwell the Christians at the moment of salvation. After the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, there is no more mention of this two-step process. And now when a person places their trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, the Holy Spirit immediately indwells, baptizes, and seals the person. The Bible tells us two church leaders, the apostles Peter and John, were sent by the church in Jerusalem to investigate this report of many Samaritans turning to Christ. They came to the region of Samaria and personally prayed for these converts and that God would send the Holy Spirit to indwell them as a sign of them being part of the church. And this happened while Peter and John were there so they could serve as an eyewitness that Gentiles and Samaritans were part of the church just as Jews are a part of the church, which we read about in Acts chapter 15. But look what happens in verses 18 to 20. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. The Bible tells us that when Simon saw how the two apostles laying of hands on the converts had resulted in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he wanted this power as well and offered to buy this power from the apostles. Notice how at the end of verse 13 that Simon, even though he was already saved, took particular interest and fascination with the miracles of Philip. He wanted the power and authority. This was a man who perhaps because of his background dabbling in the occult or had not been fully discipled didn't know that you can't buy spiritual power. And Peter strongly rebuked him and said, you can't buy spiritual power and influence. He basically said, you can take your money and go to hell with it. Now, it doesn't mean that Simon was going to hell because he did place his trust in Jesus. But it meant that money means nothing to God who owns it all and people can't buy their way into heaven and they can't buy power and authority from God. And this is our third biblical principle. Money plays no part in spiritual power and influence. Money plays no part in spiritual power and influence. Or even to a larger extent, we can say that we cannot pay God off to gain His blessings or to curry His favor. The gifting and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, cannot be bought. The God who owns everything in the world doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. His enabling power, authority, and influence cannot be bought. Giving more money doesn't guarantee you will receive more of God's grace and blessings. You see, there are some Christians who wrongly think that if they give to God more money or tithe more to the church, it will make up for their sinful living or so that God's discipline and punishment will not come or will be lessened. Then there are those who think they can steal and do unethical things and then use a portion of that earned monies to give to God's work. They would be fooling themselves as God can see through their hypocritical actions. My friends, in the New Testament, we're taught that for a Christian, 
the giving of our time and resources is a privilege on our part in response and in thanksgiving for all of God's blessings in our life. Giving is voluntary and should come from a cheerful and willing heart as a response to God's grace and love. Likewise, since money plays no part in spiritual power and influence, receiving monetary blessings and having money doesn't mean God loves you more than someone else. What you have money and resource-wise doesn't determine your worth in God's eyes, nor does it speak of His approval of your life. You know, it's interesting that in the early church, as recorded in the Bible, two of the most serious rebukes and punishment was about money in the church. We have one example here with Simon and Peter's very strong rebuke. And earlier, in the case of Ananias and his wife Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, who tried to lie to God with their giving. So, my friends, we have to be very careful, both as Christians and in the church, that we don't use our money to try to win influence and of the wrong notion that money is a sign of God's blessings and power in our lives. God cannot be bought, and we shouldn't try to buy God off. This is something we have to guard ourselves against in this church, and it is something I will make sure that never happens as long as I'm senior pastor, that just because you are rich and have lots of money doesn't mean you automatically will have power, position, and influence in this church. The Bible tells us that God cannot be bought, and so it is in this church as well, God's church, that money does not buy you a position. I read now verses 21 to 24. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, for this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. The Bible tells us that Peter continued his rebuke of Simon in verse 21 by telling him that he won't be receiving any special power from God, because not only can it not be bought with money, but more importantly, his heart was not right in the sight of God. Therefore, he was to repent to the Lord for his sinful ways and desires and pray for God's forgiveness. You see, my friends, at the end of the day, the heart has to be right before God. This is what is most important to God. If Simon's heart was truly in the right place, then he would naturally repent, tell the Lord he was sorry to have thought that spiritual things can be bought, not earned, and having a change of heart. And we do see Simon's repentant heart. That's why what happened to Ananias and Sapphira didn't happen to him. And this is our fourth principle about power influence, biblical principle number four. A right heart is what God is looking for to bestow power and influence. A right heart is what God is looking for to bestow power and influence. It's all about making the right heart. As Stuart Strachan writes, in the Christian faith, we frequently take for granted how radically Jesus evens the playing field. No matter your wealth, your position, let alone your race or gender, all of us are equal in God's eyes. No one is given special status or access to God over another. 
the Roman emperor Theodosius had to learn this the hard way. Theodosius established Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire, but that did not automatically make him a saint. When after massacring thousands of citizens in Thessalonica, Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, refused to offer him communion. In fact, Ambrose personally confronted Theodosius at the door of the church saying, you cannot enter here with hands soiled by human blood. Theodosius cunningly responded that if he was guilty of murder, so was King David, the man supposedly after God's own heart. Ambrose's response was equally as quick. Emperor, you have imitated David in his crime. Now imitate him in repentance. You see, my friends, a right heart is not about being perfect. We all make mistakes. We all fall. But a right heart is humble enough to admit that we were wrong, humble enough to seek God's forgiveness, and humble enough to live out a changed and transformed life. The church grows when its people know that it is not money that buys power and influence, but a right heart that God looks for to bestow power and influence. That is what Hanani, the prophet of God, told the Judean King Asa in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. The Bible tells us that King Asa had forgotten that it was the Lord who bestows power and influence. And so, during his kingship, he trusted God less and less, and he trusted more the powerful armies of his allies. And so, he had to be reminded of this biblical truth, and God sent him the prophet Hanani. And he told him, the eyes of the Lord are running through the entire world to show himself strong, to make powerful those whose hearts are loyal to him, those with the right heart. King David also understood this, and that's why after his sin with Bathsheba, he pleaded with the Lord in Psalm 51, verses 10 to 11. Psalm 51, verses 10 to 11. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David understood that God could easily take away everything from him, he could take away his power. He could take away his influence. He could take away his kingdom. He could take away his life. That's why David repented and asked God to create in him a clean heart. David wanted to have a right heart before God. In the same way, at the end of the day, as a follower of Christ, it's all about your walk with Jesus. It's about your heart. Don't worry about trying to gain power and get influence in this world. Just work on your heart and have a right walk with God and leave the rest to God. A right heart is what God is looking for to bestow power and influence. And yet in this generation, we don't develop and cultivate our hearts because we want to be like the influencers and celebrities that are pushed as the models of our lives and we strive to live their fantasy lives in ours. Donna Rockwell writes about the sad consequences of celebrity worship. For decades, the media in all of its forms have created celebrities that are framed, groomed, and packaged solely for the purpose of dissemination 
through mass media. Many people, some living frustrated lives, live vicariously through the allegedly exciting lives of these glamorous personalities, representing hopes and dreams personally unfulfilled. The result is that we have created synthetic celebrities whom we worship, however briefly, because they vicariously act out our noblest or basest desires. For impressionable young people, celebrity worship syndrome has resulted in symptoms of depression and anxiety, lower levels of critical thinking and cognitive abilities, impaired social skills, maladaptive daydreaming that interferes with work, school, or relationships, desire for fame, which is often linked with a lack of self-acceptance, compulsive buying and materialism, difficulties with romantic relationships. This is the sad realities of what happens when we don't cultivate a heart that is right before God in this generation. But look at the results of focusing on the heart and not striving for worldly power and influence. Verse 25, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. My friends, this is why the early church grew so fast, because they were generally not playing the power and influence game. They simply focused on sharing the life-transforming, powerful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe that should be our focus today as followers of Christ. In 1987, director Bernardo Bertolucci released the film The Last Emperor based on the autobiography of the last living emperor of the Manchu dynasty in China, Puyi. And while the story tells the richest to rag story of Puyi's life, from spoiled child emperor to imprisoned and tortured detainee after the revolution to his final seven years as a gardener in a Beijing park, What is perhaps most interesting is one account toward the beginning of the film. As a young emperor, Puyi was surrounded by the trappings of an imperial power. One thousand servants existed to fulfill his every whim. At one point, Puyi's brother asked him what happened to him when he made a mistake. The emperor responded, When I do something wrong, somebody else is punished. To demonstrate this, he picked up an ornate jar and smashed it on the ground. Immediately, a servant was taken and beaten for the action of the emperor. Now, we would say that this is an abuse of power, and yet, this is the type of power so many, including Christians, crave for, even in the church, where they have so much power and influence that we can do whatever we want with no consequences and no one will be able to call us out and tell us what to do. No accountability. We all desire to have so much power that when we mess up, we don't even have to apologize, and perhaps someone else would just take the blame. I hope you and I understand this is not the power and influence that God desires in us. May this generation of Christ followers, young and old, have a proper understanding of power and influence as we remember that, number one, there is true power and authority in the person of Jesus Christ. Number two, there is true power and authority in God's Word. Number three, money plays no part in spiritual power and influence. 
And number four, a right heart is what God is looking for to bestow power and influence. My friends, let us remember these biblical principles on power and influence. Let us remember that we need to cultivate a right heart before God, a humble heart, so that we will not be influenced by how the world defines power and influence. We cannot buy God off, so let us remember to draw near to God, focus on His Word, and live for Jesus, where all authority and power comes from. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes it is so difficult to understand that it is not with our two hands that we have the power to control our lives and influence others. Help us to remember these scriptural principles. Help us to humble ourselves. Help us not to be bought into what the world teaches us, but remember what the Bible tells us to be true, that a heart for God is what you desire. And we pray that we would humbly cultivate a heart that looks to you for power and enablement because we can't do it by ourselves. Teach us, Lord. We desire to learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.